Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrel pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, my question for you this week doesn't actually come from me. It comes from Liz in Long Island. And the question is this. Do you question Noah Syndergaard's patriotism? <laughs> if that question doesn't make any sense to you, here's a clip from Mike Princess's radio show last week. <laughs> uh, Liz in East Northport starts us off. Go ahead, Liz. Hi, how are you? I'm Good, what's happening? That this guy, this baseball player, Noah Syndergaard's getting elective surgery. He is. I question his patriotism. I'm a no, no, come on. Okay. Now, that, now that's not fair. No, I'm a healthcare worker waiting for a knee replacement. Right. A knee replacement. Right. Well, that's you can, but, but you don't, but you don't, but listen, but you don't have to have that knee replacement this week. No, I do. I'm a healthcare worker. I am not weight bearing, cannot work out on this. Well, yeah, but you're going to be out for, you're going to be out for the next three or four months anyway, though. No, I am not. I'm going to be out for 12 weeks. I had to be back at work at 12 weeks. Well, yeah, I mean, boy, but listen, I've had a knee replacement. It's going to take you. It's going to take you a while to come back. It is. Oh, I went to the hospital special surgery at first. I was refused. Right. Well, they're not allowed to do any surgeries. Listen, I agree with you, but I wouldn't bring his patriotism into this. Okay, the Mets made a mistake <laughs> here. Special surgery made a mistake here. We all know. So now, Alex, so now, Alex, do you question Noah Syndergaard's patriotism? Yes or no? Well, I didn't before. But now you do, right? But now that Liz put it that way. Liz from East Northrop, do you question his patriotism? (laughs) Did Mike Francesa say, you're going to be out three or four months anyway? And she responded with, no, it's like 12 weeks. Yeah, yes, yes. Great note. (laughs) She thinks that she's going to get a knee replacement and be back working in 12 weeks well as a, as a healthcare worker shout out to also the healthcare worker in these times well my point in that is that those are the same thing three months <laughs> is 12 weeks you you didn't refute his point <laughs> but also my francesa being like well you don't need the surgery and then she says why she does need the surgery and then he says well you're gonna be out anyway yeah he's like He's like talking about Liz like she's like a like a pitcher who's getting like back surgery or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. I So so what's the answer? Is Noah Syndergaard a patriot? I I can't say that he is, frankly. I mean, I mean what he's doing is uh Actually, no, I take that back. He is a patriot because what he's doing is he's continuing the uh the century-long tradition of being able to dunk on the Mets. And that my friends is an American pastime. You're absolutely right about that. I I can't believe we're arguing on Twitter and elsewhere about how the Mets factor into the COVID-19 crisis. I, I can't. I mean, I knew in my heart that they would find a way to make their way into this, but I didn't think that it was going to be because Noah Syndergaard had to get Tommy John surgery <laughs> and it became an elective surgery that was then uh, something for people to argue over on Twitter. Weird times, my friends. Weird times. Extremely weird times. Um, the Mets and Knicks, man. They always have to find a way into these stories. Uh, 
We are going to continue our series, the Tipping Pitches Classic series, with what uh, what Alex and I discovered is maybe the greatest baseball game ever played. It's 1995 ALDS Game 5 between the Seattle Mariners and the New York Yankees. But before we do that, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Baisley. And this is Tipping Pitches. All right, Alex. So real quick before before I get into my summary, there was some baseball news this week. Obviously, the MLB and the MOBPA came to an agreement over how players would get paid. And the PA has stressed, along with the league, that they don't want to come back and play unless there's no travel restrictions and fans can be in the ballparks. Now, I don't think that we totally know exactly what that means because there's a lot of caveats to it. Like, I think they might play games at neutral sites. And um, I think that... They left themselves a lot of wiggle room to get out of this if, say, like June or July rolls around and there's still travel restrictions and there's still restrictions on mass gatherings. But I, I feel like I feel like we start every segment about the coronavirus by saying like we don't know anything about this and we don't know how this might change in the next week. So I, we're not going to totally go into this. But do you have any quick drive-by thoughts on what happened in the last week, news-wise? My drive-by thoughts are that we're probably not going to get baseball this year. That's uh, looks like the way we're headed. Yeah, that's the headline. Yeah, and uh, I think at the bare minimum, maybe we uh, maybe we start around the All Star break. I, again, not not a doctor, not a professional, but the way that MLB is talking about this, and the way that they are kind of couching the start of the season in all of these um, things that kind of need to line up and happen. I, uh, I do, like I don't foresee just everything being back to normal in June. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a long season of looking in the mirror. You know, we may yeah. just have to instead of picking like tentpole games, we may just have to pick an entire season. We just go back and watch a whole season. <laughs> Honestly, yes, yeah. Why not? At least I don't know how most of those games end. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Are you ready? Ninety-five ALDS game five. Are you ready to do this? Let's. You know, before we jump in, one other thing. We're about to talk about the uh, the ninety-five Mariners, which features kind of features one young Alex Rodriguez, who, if President Trump is to believe, may solve coronavirus. I, we don't know. But uh, but our boy Donnie called him up and said, hey, A-Rod, what do you, what do you think? What, what is this? Explain this to me. <laughs> like, I, I'm th- like, I'm, like I'm in third grade. I can't. That's the whole story. That's- we, don't, we don't know the substance of their conversation. But he was just like, A-Rod, I want your thoughts. Is it like A-Rod started Task Force, or is it like A-Rod, give me some takes? I think it's A-Rod, you know a lot about drug testing, so uh, (laughs) come through. What do you think? Oh, man. We were ever so young watching this game in 1995. I mean, you and I were not born, but the people that were watching this game were ever so young, not realizing that A-Rod was going to come to define multiple generations of baseball and human life in the united states for for literal decades to come yeah literally (laughs) we could spend this whole segment talking about a-rod but we're not going to do that because he comes into this game only as a pinch hitter yep (laughs) all right are you ready for my summary let's go seattle mariners griffey johnson buner charlton new york yankees Mattingly, Williams, Boggs, 
If you gave me a full day to think about it, or hell, maybe a full week, a full month, or let's just say a full couple months until the baseball season comes back, I don't think that I could concoct a formula that would make a baseball game feel more consequential to the history of the game than Game 5 of the 95 ALDS between the Yankees and the Mariners. Now, I know what you're saying. It's a division series. Neither team even went on to win the championship series, let alone the World Series. You're right. You're completely right. But here's what this game offers that no other baseball game you can watch will offer quite as well. A generational connection between two of the most important generations in baseball history. In our last episode, we talked about Game 7 of the 91 World Series, a 10-inning shutout from Hall of Famer Jack Morris that instantly went down in baseball lore as one of the most clutch, gutsy performances imaginable. Alex, it was kind of a snoozer, though. Oh, my God. Uh, Real quick, when we watched this game last week, we were like, yeah, I'll give this an A. Great game. Great game. If we're grading it on a curve, wow. It gets like an F a D. In, in week two. <laughs> <laughs> that game's cast of characters looks like JV team compared to 95 ALDS's varsity. In no particular order, here's a list of players that had an impact on the outcome of this game. Wade Boggs, Don Mattingly, Tino Martinez, Bernie Williams, my favorite Yankee of all time. A plucky 20-year-old named Alex Rodriguez who came into pinch run because Luis Soho started that short. Mariano Rivera, who was just throwing absolute darts. Musburger mentioned that Buck Showalter showed a lot of confidence bringing him into this game at all. That comment hasn't aged well. The big ticket, Randy Johnson, Ken Griffey Jr., and of course, last but not least, Edgar Martinez. My head is spinning. Lots of names. Lots of, lots of remembering some guys here. Plus, the guys who never made it into the game but were seen in the dugout are mentioned in passing. Derek Jeter, Andy Pettit, Jorge Posada, and Daryl Strawberry. And even the goddamn managers, Alex. Buck Showalter. Slow heartbeat on that guy. He's just lounging in the dugout, just straight face the whole game. And Lou Pinella. Sweet Lou. Gotta love him. I love Lou Pinella. By my quick count, that's six Hall of Famers, Griffey, Edgar, Johnson, Boggs, Jeter, and Moe, and two guys who've still got a shot depending on voters' attitudes, A-Rod and Andy Pettit, plus two more guys that maybe didn't get a long enough look in Bernie Williams and Don Mattingly. It's uh, it's a mouthful of stars. It's a lot. Um, Here's everything you need to know about the actual events of the game. It's Game 5, forced by a heroic Game 4 Grand Slam from Edgar Martinez, hitting 600 in the series with two home runs. Not bad, not bad. The Yankees have David Cohn on the bump, who over the course of this game, I realized is one of the first modern pitchers. Uh, If you want to see the template for someone like Lance McCullers, go watch David Cohn. His fastball has zip, but it's largely straight. So he uses it in conjunction with the tightest, sharpest slider you'll ever see from a pitcher before 2000. Incredible, incredible stuff out of that guy. The M's have a dude I've never heard of, and uh, maybe I'm dating myself here. Maybe I'm dating you and me, but uh, do you know who Andy Bennis is? Uh... I didn't before I started. I do now. <laughs> now I know who he is. He's acquired in the uh, middle of the season. Is someone who's older than us listening to this going to be like, how do, those, how do those guys not know who Andy Bennis is? Yes, absolutely. You think so? Or is he just like a bygone era guy? Well, I mean, he's, uh, you know, part of the part of one of the biggest games in baseball history. So so not anymore. What a way to cement your, your name in the lore of the game. Great goatee on that guy. Real yeah. 90s era stuff out of him. Yeah, we went from uh, mustaches in 91 to goatees in 95. How quickly things change. Although there is a lot of mustaches in this game, I will say, though, on the Yankee side. (laughs) Mattingly looks like he's in Top Gun. (laughs) Uh, While Game 4 was a hitter's delight, Game 5 is paced out. The Mariners strike first, then the Yankees get two, then the Mariners tie it. It's a whole lot of pitchers teetering on the edge of getting knocked out, but hanging on to keep it under control. Cone strikes out guys to end the 4th, 6th, and 7th inning with men on base. But it really starts to heat up in the eighth with the Yankees up 4-2 after they were able to string up, string together a few hits off Mariners reliever Norm Charlton. 
Also, incredible name, Norman Charlton. The heart of the Mariners lineup is due up a devastating back-to-back-to-back of Griffey, Martinez, Edgar, and Martinez Tino. That would also add Alex Rodriguez the next year, perhaps the greatest hitter of all time. Oh my God. Can you imagine if Alex Rodriguez had won this game instead of Edgar Martinez? Oh God, this game would suck. (laughs) (laughs) Would it be the worst? (laughs) You're right. It would be significantly worse because Edgar Martinez is a deserving hero in this game. Uh, Griffey cuts the lead in half, and this is the eighth inning now. Griffey cuts the lead in half with an absolute moonshot that Yankees right fielder Paul O'Neill didn't even move for. Side note, Griffey, swing plane founding father? What do you think? Uh, Founding father of everything good about baseball today is mostly (laughs) how I would leave that one. Cone starts to run out of gas, putting multiple men on base via the walk before walking in the tying run and kicking himself on the mound in truly crushing fashion. He was so locked in in this game that I actually found myself feeling bad for a Yankees player in the same game where they cut to flaming pile of dirt, George Steinbrenner, like 37 times in his booth. We go to the ninth, and oh, did I forget to mention that when the Mariners started to run into trouble in the eighth, they got Randy Johnson up in the bullpen? He comes on in the ninth with Welcome to the Jungle blaring. Amazing. Dodges some incredibly outdated sacrifice bunt attempts and turns it over to the Mariners lineup in the bottom of the ninth, who do nothing against the greatest relief pitcher of all time that no one knew yet, Mariano Rivera. On to the tenth, where Johnson strikes out the side and the Mariners knock out Rivera. They fail to score off former Cy Young winner Jack McDowell. A lot of guys throwing on their throw day in this game, Alex. I did notice that. Yeah. In the tenth inning, and they move on to the eleventh, where a leadoff walk costs Johnson as a seeing eye single scores a Yankees runner to make it five four Yankees heading to the bottom of the eleventh. Here's where it gets really good. Outdated contact two hitter Joey Cora. Remember when we used to just put on guys who could just slap hit and get on base for the three hitter? Yeah, absolutely. And now we have like Mike Trout hitting second. <laughs> My takeaway from this game is that Joey Cora is now the better Cora. <laughs> <laughs> That's Rob Manfred's takeaway from this game also. He lays down a perfect drag button to get on first base and avoids and avoids Mattingly's tag in controversial fashion. Was he out of the baseline? Probably. Was he an American hero for getting on base to beat the Yankees? Definitely. Griffey singles and Cora goes first to third, which brings up the absolute king, Edgar Martinez who promptly and calmly smacks a double to left field, smacks a double to the left field corner to score both Cora and Griffey and send the Mariners to the ALCS. Now, running down a box score of everything that happens in this game may or may not make you want to watch it. It may not even sound like that much, but what should make you want to watch this is baseball history happening in real time. We get good baseball games as often as once a week during the regular season. There are so many baseball games. Garrett Cole goes eight, strikes out 10, while the Astros pace the Rangers. Good game. Bryce Harper hits one to Jupiter to walk off in the thin air of Philadelphia night. Great game. Jacob deGrom outduels Max Scherzer on opening day to give the Mets fans hope before it inevitably inevitably comes crumbling down months later. Great game. But what we don't get every day is a generational Venn diagram as poignant and satisfying as this game. The old Yankees lineup, still potent and electrifying, passing the torch to the new Yankees lineup in 96. The peak of the coolest player in baseball history, Ken Griffey Jr., derailing a gem from a former Cy Young winner in David Cohn. The consistency and power of Edgar Martinez, long one of the most underappreciated superstars in baseball, colliding with another former Cy Young winner in Jack McDowell. Baseball, Alex, we say it all the time, is a game of history and nostalgia, but the beauty of that history is that it truly feels like one long chain, uninterrupted and harmonious with past eras, there for you every step of the way. This game, after the 94 season was ended short because of the strike, relinked the chain and gave us the next era of baseball that we came to be so familiar with. A Yankees dynasty 
MVP, Ken Griffey, the A-Rod era, Seattle heartbreak, and so much more. Did I miss anything? I mean, you're always going to miss something <laughs> when you talk about a game like this, but that was, uh, that was pretty good. Um, before, uh, before we actually dive into this game, I do want to talk about just like the, the story leading up to it and everything that kind of built up to this moment because it's as much about the season leading up to this game as it is about game five of the uh, of the ALDS or even the entire series which is a insane I mean we could have watched picked basically any game played from game one to game five and had something to talk about right we have a 15 inning five hour game in game two uh we have this one was getting close this one was getting 11 inning four hour game (laughs) yeah uh Rob Manfred's greatest nightmare but like (laughs) You got to know like what the Mariners are playing for at this point, right? Because they have, since their inception in 1977, they've been God awful, more or less. They've, they've, they, (laughs) they have, they've flirted uh, with being a good team, but really have, have not come anywhere close. And Griffey is kind of like this shining light that could take them um, into this era of greatness and like you were saying, coming out of the 94 season, strike shortened season, um, baseball is really kind of riding on on a lot here. They really need some sort of heroics to bring fans and players back into the fold. And the Mariners specifically, they're playing in the kingdom, which is just a decrepit mess at this point. They need a new stadium. Packed um, to the brim, though. It, and 57,000 pa- fans in that place. Absolutely. Yeah. But the Mariners are trying to get a, a new stadium. Um, they're, they're playing amidst a lot of rumors that they're going to leave the city entirely because the team in the city can't come to a deal on building a new stadium. And so the owners basically say, look, if we can't come to a deal by October 30th of 95, we're going to talk about selling the team. And so the Mariners really are playing to convince the city and the owners and the fans that, that this is where they belong. And so you talk about that packed house. That's those fans showing up and saying, Hey, we want this team here. And in the middle of August, things are looking bleak for them. They're 13 games behind the California Angels. They're in third place. That's Griffey's a blast been, from the past. When yes. he said California Angels, <laughs> I was like, who is that? <laughs> uh, Griffey's been out for half the year at this point because he broke his wrist in May. So Running into the wall in the outfield running, of the decrepit kingdom. Of the decrepit kingdom in an incredible play because that's... I mean, that's Griffey's motif right there, is injuring himself and putting his body on the line for the game. But, like, the Mariners are playing for so much more than, like, just a a playoff appearance. This is their first playoff appearance in their history. It comes down to a one-game playoff. A proverbial game 163, because this was a shortened season and they only played 144 games and the angels and mariners play game 145 and randy johnson goes nine innings uh 12 strikeouts mariners win 9-1 and win the division on the last day of the season i mean this is just if you had stripped away the whatever happened in the postseason like this is an incredible run for the mariners regardless of how it ends and their, and their motto for the season just becomes refuse to lose because that's what this, that's what this team did. They just, they would not give in. And like you were saying, the fans, they knew it. 
and they and they showed up. There's a sign that hangs in the stands uh, late in the season that says, "If if you build it, we will come." And that's the fans saying, "Look, if you build the stadium, we're going to show up. We're going to show out. We love this team." And they they were right. There's something about this game that feels like very Seattle. And it, it may be like bullshit for me to say that because I, I haven't really spent a lot of time in Seattle, but like all of the fans are like they're they're dressed like kind of hipstery with their like crew necks and their glasses and their hats and everything. And like and the the announcer for the game is Brent Musburger, who who did a fantastic job, by the way. Um and he like, I thought he was fine. No, I thought he was we'll good. continue. His I <laughs> Yeah, all right. We'll we'll get into it. We'll get into it. But continue. Okay. Well, he mentions like he mentions like double lattes. Like these fans need double lattes after showing up to cheer in game four for a really long game and everything. And it's just like it just captures a moment in a way that like I don't even think ninety one World Series game seven really captured. Cause I feel like that that game could have been with the way that with the way that Jack Morris was pitching, it could have been like seventy seven or eighty four or ninety one or ninety eight not really anything after 2000 but you know what i mean like this game specifically just captured a moment and put it on screen and it's a moment that like i didn't have any trouble revisiting while watching it i wasn't even born for this and i could still understand just everything that that meant and as evidenced by the fact that the the supersonics actually did get taken away from seattle not that long after this so so Seattle City Council meant business, unfortunately. Yeah, no pressure, Mariners. You're just playing for this entire franchise. <laughs> I do feel like this game was a lot more, a lot closer to the actual like style of baseball that you and me are used to yeah. than, than the 91 game was. And it's crazy that just four years can make that big of a difference. I mean, you could, I guess you could make the argument that it has more to do with the players rather than the era, just the players that happen to be on each of these teams. But even still, the one thing that did stick out as like a sore thumb of, wow, you would never see anything like that in today's baseball is just the pitch counts. <laughs> How the fact that David manager... Cohn was in there to walk in the tying run. He was over 140 pitches when he did that. After going eight innings in his prior appearance in the series. Uh, Andy Bennis threw... Uh, threw 40 pitches in the sixth inning to bring him right up over 100 pitches, and he still came out for the seventh inning. Rand- Randy Johnson is, uh, is Madison Bumgarner, I guess. I think that's <laughs> what... <laughs> I, I think what I can appreciate most about these games that we've watched so far is it, uh, it decreases the significance of Madison Bumgarner's feet a little bit. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you're not special. <laughs> Except that Madison Bumgarner did it in Game 7 of the World Series, but yeah. All right, all right. Um. Let's talk about the strike a little bit, real quick. It was sort of like subtext throughout the beginning of this game that this is like that you need. I guess it was subtext throughout this whole season. I I don't know, but that you need baseball to show how exciting it can be again because it needs to attract fans back again. And I feel like it's an interesting time for us to talk about this right now, Alex, because we may be in a similar situation. Granted, it'll be for different reasons, but ending the '94 season pausing the country's interest in baseball and then bringing it back in 95, I feel like that's kind of a flashpoint. Like that's a dangerous moment where if baseball doesn't do a good job of marketing itself or if it doesn't, if the ball just doesn't bounce the right way and you don't get entertaining games and it's just a boring postseason, I feel like it could have been in real trouble. Like based on everything that I've read and everything I understand about the game and 
even relaying it to now, I don't know. Like, I feel like if when baseball comes back, it's just a lot of like negative, toxic conversations and not a lot of great baseball games. I feel like we might be in a similar situation where like we need a great playoff series between two fun, amazing teams like this 95 ALDS in order to refocus what is good and what is important about baseball and the culture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it <laughs> it pains me to say this, but as I was watching this game, I was actually kind of reminded of the 2017 World Series and the way that it captured the attention of sports fans, whether you liked baseball or not. I mean, that w- that felt like a World Series that really broke beyond just the very kind of insular nature of baseball itself. And say what you will about the Astros and whatever they were doing <laughs> at that time. But like, if if you had no clue what was going on in in the dugouts, in the clubhouses, whatever, like that was that was really incredible baseball that we were watching. And it's because you had these stars on a national stage, just kind of a, a big part of it is like offense. There was really good offense going back and forth. And, yeah. and that's what this game had as well. That's what the series had as well. Griffey had five home runs. Oh my God. I watching this game. I just, he tied the record in the series with, with, with uh, Reggie Jackson, with who, Reggie, was in the who, was, who was sitting there and held, and held up his hand as five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I watching this game. I just, I, I wish that I could have watched every single game that Ken Griffey Jr. Played. Ever played. I suppose maybe, I still could. I got a, I got a whole, maybe that should be our project. <laughs> uh, there's something that Musburger mentioned it. I think it was in the first inning or maybe the second inning or whenever Edgar came up to bat first. And he said, if you guys don't catch a lot of West Coast baseball, you probably don't know enough about how great this guy is. And it just struck me as like, are we still having that problem? Like, are there people who don't get to see Mike Trout? Are there people who didn't get to see Ken Griffey Jr.? Were there people who didn't know that Edgar Martinez was hitting like 370 with like 40 home runs this year? That just feels like a huge thing that we need to get rid of. How is it possible that we still have issues with marketing our game's best players even dating back to 95 when it's ken griffey jr who is just every second he's on screen it's just absolutely captivating and the same goes for mike trout now like i watched a highlight of mike trout the other day going five for five against the yankees i just watched it on instagram tv and i was like riveted but yeah are, aren't we still having this problem yeah we are uh and we have it's something I think we have tried and failed to parse out and solve <laughs> on on this very podcast before. Um, I think that it's it's also a little easier said than done because if you were watching the Mariners in June, you probably wouldn't have been that interested because this was a team that really got caught fire in like late August and September, and so. I suppose maybe fans can be forgiven for not watching Mariners games. And it's also like, as we've said before, like it's a very regional sport and I don't know how you kind of break beyond that. Um, it's, it's hard to create these marquee matchups because you might turn on a Mariners game and Martinez goes over four and you're like, really, this is the guy, this is who was all the hype was about. All right. Except Ken, he never went over four. <laughs> Ken, yeah, true. Ken Griffey Jr. More like Ken Griffey boo. Year. So, like, you know, I, 
<laughs> had to get that in there. But I, yes, I see your point. It's something that like baseball has struggled with, I think for, for years and, and decades. And it's still something that it, it feels like it's getting worse, not better, but it's, who knows at this point? Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I find it hard to believe that there was a world where Ken Griffey Jr. was playing baseball every day and not everyone was freaking out about that. Cause not only like, not only is he actually one of the top 10, 15, 20 baseball players to ever put on a uniform, but also like he was cool. <laughs> he was like a cool guy and a nice yeah. guy and a good dude. And the whole world knew about him because his dad obviously played in the majors before him. And there's just this ineffable quality to him every time he's on screen in this game where like he's never too high and he's never too low. He's just like cool and calm and collected the whole time. And he, you could tell he like rattled David Cohn who had been in the league for like 10 years at this point. And you go to the eighth inning and Cohn is obviously running out of gas, but he has to step off the mound multiple times before throwing to Ken Griffey Jr. And, and this is a guy that's like, he's thrown a perfect game in the major leagues. He's pitched, he's won a Cy Young with the Mets. Like he's done a lot of stuff to like establish who he is. And he has great stuff and he's really confident and, and Buck Showalter is obviously really confident in him and to leave him in to face Ken Griffey Jr. in the eighth inning. But then he leaves one fastball high right in Ken Griffey Jr.'s zone and he just unloads on it with that picturesque, beautiful swing. He takes a second to watch it and then he jogs around the bases and doesn't even get that excited. It's like he expects to do this. And I just, I don't know. That ends my Ken Griffey Jr. is good corner, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) He also has this gorgeous smile right and there's the iconic photo of him uh great haircut on un- him too great haircut on him too yeah he's got the the photo of him underneath the dog pile after the martinez walk off and he's just g- grinning ear to ear staring at the camera and it's just it's, that's i need more of that in my life did you catch that uh a rod was the first person to greet him at home plate <laughs> no i didn't because cora scored before griffey scored yeah and he was and- like and he was bringing him in, telling him to slide. And then as soon as he slides in, Cora sprints straight past him to go celebrate with Edgar at second base, who hit the double to score everyone. And A-Rod is the first person out of the dugout to meet Griffey at home plate. So it's like this picture of A-Rod hugging Ken Griffey Jr. right as the dog pile comes. And I'm just like, damn. If It cannot be more... It cannot be more metaphorical than what I just watched. <laughs> I know. Yeah, A-Rod's, A-Rod's on deck. Once again, A-Rod had multiple, like, was well, in a scenario. Had one at bat. Yeah, yeah, he did only have one at bat. Um, and he had, uh, yeah, he strikes, no, sorry. Yeah, he grounds out earlier in the game. And, and once again, like, he was going to potentially be in a position to, uh, to walk this game off if Edgar doesn't do it first. And frankly, I was... I'm not surprised, but but like Jeter and A-Rod are nowhere to be found in this game. Yeah. And frankly, like I think that we're better for that because they would have been just kind of, I feel like, the dominating forces. Um, and, and this game didn't need that, thankfully. It didn't need either of their presences to make for one of the most captivating games in history. Well, it was just really funny to watch it now because like, yeah. One of the questions that I have here, and we can just move on to some of my some of the questions and observations and things like that if you have any of those listed out anywhere. But one of the questions I have here is how different is this game if it happens two years later? You probably have Andy Pettit starting. 
You probably have Jeter hitting leadoff for the Yankees. A-Rod is hitting second for the Mariners, probably. And Mariano Rivera is coming in in the, in the ninth as like one of the most reliable closers in the game. Also, it was funny to watch Mariano Rivera go from the windup, which he never did once he became Mo. You know, yeah, he only yeah. went from the stretch, which was funny. Yeah, like if this game happens two years later, if it happens five years later, I don't, it's like a completely different ball game. And I think that that is just what makes it so interesting. It came together at this exact moment where the the setup of every of each lineup just happened to be that there was like guys picked and chosen from these different eras of baseball. Like the, one of the first things I said when I turned this game on was. I have no fucking clue when Wade Boggs was in Major League Baseball. I thought Wade Boggs was like, was, wasn't he like 60s, 70s, 80s? I don't know. what He was like, <laughs> I didn't know that. He, I just knew him as like this guy who was a Hall of Famer. And I didn't even realize when he, like 95? Like on the same field as Derek Jeter? <laughs> who the fuck knew? Wade Boggs, yeah. You want to talk amazing mustaches. Yeah, true. Um. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. No, if this if this series happens a year later, like we don't we don't get this outcome. I mean, this is the this is the end of this is the end basically of the Yankees playoff drought, right? I mean, they and, and one of the prevailing storylines around this series is the series in this season is Don Mattingly, right? Who is basically ending he knows that he's at the end of his career with the Yankees. And but it's he's seeming, still hitting like 340. But he's still, yeah, still having a great year. And and even has his own heroics in uh, in this series. But it's looking like his time is is winding down in baseball for good. And it eventually does. This ends up being his, his last season in the major leagues. Um, and this is Mattingly's first playoff appearance. The Yankees never managed to win a playoff series with him. They have... That's this crushing. is that is so crushing. incredibly and they go on and win the world series the next year right like how yeah like what what do you got to feel like you know this is a guy this is a guy that hit 307 with 222 home runs for his career he put up like almost 43 war yeah and he only made the playoffs once yeah and in his final at bat of his career as he's standing at the plate the mariners crowd sits there chanting donnie strike out clap 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 <laughs> clap clap and what does randy johnson do Strikes him out, strikes looking. him out. Just brutal stuff. So you gotta, you gotta feel for the guy who really is like, just one of the one of the good guys of the game in the in the eighties and nineties. Yeah, that I uh, I have less of a question and more of an observation here. There's a lot of incest between these two teams. Like, there's so many players that ended up going back and forth between them. It's kind of reminiscent to me of like the early two thousands A's, and with the with the way that they pass players back and forth with the Yankees. Like, um. You know, you got Tino Martinez, who is on the Yankees team the next year playing first base when the Yankees win the World Series. And uh, obviously you got Randy Johnson, who ended up on the Yankees at some point in his career. You got Alex Rodriguez, who obviously it's like the the first third of his career was with the Mariners and the back third of his career was with the Yankees. And I don't know, there just feels like this this predator and Lou Lou Piniella, who coached the the Yankees. yeah, Yeah, exactly. There just feels like a preternatural link between these two teams that makes it all the more interesting while watching. Do you have any other big observations or big questions that I missed so far? I have a I have a couple observations so we can go through quick because I know we're going we're going real long on this game, but you know, greatest game in baseball history. You got to do that. Um hey Bobby, Edgar Martinez doesn't exist. 
about the DH. God damn it. <laughs> Fuck this. Pass, dealing with skip. dealing hamstring injuries limit him from playing in the field. But you know what the American League introduces? DH. No, no greatest game in history without the DH. I don't hamstring injuries didn't really limit him from playing in the field. If he was this good of a hitter, it's not like he would have been washed out of the fucking league, dude. They would have just put him at first. I mean, I guess, yeah. But if if it's getting to the point where like you're getting injured like three, four times from the same injury during the season, like that's yeah. that's a tough beat for my guy. But like, you don't injure your hamstring in the field that often. You injure your hamstring running the bases, which he still had to do as the DH. I don't have stats on that. I don't have like hamstring injuries <laughs> in field versus hamstring injuries on the base. But I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say when you have to go from a from a standstill in the batter's box to a dead sprint, that's when you're most likely to get a hamstring injury. All right. Well, we'll we'll agree to uh, to to disagree on on this Listen, one as we do with every DH topic. All I'm saying is, if he was in the NL, they would have found a way to make him into a first baseman, like fucking like Pete Alonso or something. He's Pete Alonso. <laughs> sure, yeah, Pete Alonso's Edgar Martinez. Um, actually, actually, Albert Pujols is Edgar Martinez 2.0. Yes, yeah, that's a that's a that's a good take. The same format, just like incredible contact, but with a, a lot of power, it can cover all portions of the plate. But um, it's just deadly when it gets up and in. Like I don't, like I just saw so much Albert Pujols and Edgar Martinez, and I guess I haven't watched a ton of Edgar Martinez because like. His prime years were before you and I started watching the game every day or knew what we were watching, really. But full career with the Mariners. What a guy. I know. So happy that he made it into the hall this year. Everyone in the stands is holding a sign. Oh, my God. The Seattle was crafty at that time. Every shot in the crowd, someone's holding a stand. And it's got, like, something unique on there. Just yeah, my res- favorite respect one- to Mariners fans. My favorite one was start spreading the news Yankees lose, <laughs> which is a play on the Yankees play uh, New York, New York by Frank Sinatra after every win in Yankee Stadium, which the lyrics are start spreading the news, you know. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. Yeah. No, I respect the Mariners fans who who put the pressure on uh, on the Yankees players by making them read signs the whole time. That's got to be tough. Imagine being in a world where you're in a playoff series against the New York Yankees, but they haven't made the playoffs in like 15 years. Isn't that weird? Like you and I don't know anything different besides the Yankees winning all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that that is weird. <laughs> what else? What else did you miss? Did I miss? The last big thing that I want to bring up, and you alluded to this before. So Brent Musburger is calling this game, and I actually do think he does call a pretty good game, all things considered. Um, he really, he actually has a lot of good insights into the the thinking of Pinella and Showalter, and kind of knowing where he might go and where where he might not go with pitchers. Um, so I'll I'll give him the majority of the game, but the call for the Martinez hit. Yeah, so yeah. boring. I'm yeah. so sorry. I, he did kind of drop the ball on that one and also on the one that the Yankees went ahead on. Like yes. he was sort of like surprised when the ball gets through and like I think he's I think he was a little bit better in the conversational aspect of the play-by-play rather than the actual like call in big moment. Yes. Yeah. Now, have you heard the Dave Niehaus call 
of the <laughs> I have. Yeah. Why don't day, I it, it, why don't please I play, play the why don't I play the Musburger one here and then I'll add in the the Niehaus one for a comparison afterwards. No balls and a strike to Martinez. base hit into the gap and they could win it with junior speed the stretch and the 0-1 pitch on the way to Edgar Martinez swung on the line down the left field line for a base hit here comes Joy here is Junior to third base they're going to wave him in the throw to the plate will be late the Mariners are going to play for the American League Championship I don't believe it it just continues my oh my Dave Niehaus, obviously longtime broadcaster for the Mariners from their inception in 77 until his death in 2010. So this is a guy who's been literally ride and die with the team. <laughs> and, <R. I>. <laughs> and he showed up for the big moment. I mean, yeah, he's he and, and he even has like the, the the classic call, my oh my, right? I mean, this is one of one of the greatest calls, I think, in in baseball history and potentially sports history. And uh enshrined in the in the seminal Macklemore song, My Oh My, about the Mariners' 1995 playoff run. So, you know, shouts, you. shouts to our boy. <laughs> I think it's my, my turn to pick the music, so that's Wait. going in there. <laughs> which one of us is Macklemore and which one of us is Ryan Lewis? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. We're, I, think, I think we're just both the whiny fans in the front row singing along. Boo, you dodged the question. Think on that, listener. Think on that. Um, while we're at it on Niehaus, before we move on to my last thing, is that um, I'm just going to play real quickly the call, really quickly the call from Game 4, where uh, Edgar Martinez hits a grand slam, because this is actually my favorite call from this series. And here comes the 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez now, and a fastball swung on and hit the deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back and Wow. Just incredible stuff. <laughs> incredible stuff. <laughs> just listening to silence. Just amazing. Bobby, You know wow. the call, though. You know? Yeah. Yes, I know the call. <laughs> Can you imagine if I forgot to put the clip in? <laughs> wow. Awesome stuff. Um, shout out to that guy. Shout out to Niehaus. That's my man. Um, okay. Final thing. It just strikes me how important it is for us to get games and to be able to talk about games where like situationally it ends up as tie game going to the bottom of the ninth home team's heart of the order coming up. Like I know that seems like an obvious thing to say, but it doesn't happen a lot. Yeah. Like most baseball games end like five, two and it's like, well played both sides, gentlemen, you know, yep. but like for this to happen in this way, with everything that you outlined at the beginning of this podcast, setting the foundation for how much this mattered, it's once in a generation. 
I don't know. I don't know if we can get something like this again. I can't think of a of a time in this decade where it worked out this well. And it went to the bottom of the ninth tie game. Randy Johnson coming in in the ninth and tenth and eleventh inning, and just giving generational guys like Ken Griffey Jr. and Edgar Martinez multiple chances to win the game and having them come through. Yeah. No. Frankly, the the closest thing that I can think to this game is game seven of the 2016 world series between the Cubs and the Indians. And even that didn't end on a walk-off home run. I mean, it had the, the similar heroics and the, the drama, the rain delay, and it goes into the 10th inning, but, but it still ultimately ends with a save. So, (laughs) and it had more to do with like the, let's be honest. Like it had more to do with like the clubs, the franchises. I feel like this game, Yes, it had to do with the franchises, but the actual players, the thing that you and I talk about all the time on this show, are the players interesting? Are the players at the forefront of what we're talking about? Are they in the center of the frame? And undoubtedly in this game, you have to say, yes, they are. They mattered more than anything else, more than the stadium, more than the fans, more than the managers, more than the announcers, more than the fact that the Mariners were going to be moved out of Seattle. All of that stuff. This game came down to the players and they made it what? They made it so great. Yeah, so uh, cheers to the greatest baseball game ever played. That ends our uh, our yeah, what Tipping Pitches Classic <laughs> segments. Don't know how we follow this one up. <laughs> uh, you make that joke, but it's actually time to pick a pick a game for next week. So, uh, Alex, what are we going with? We're uh, on our next segment. We're going to go a little bit further back in time, back to 1986. The World Series, Game 6, known for uh, a little hit that Mookie Wilson had. I think uh, I think Mookie Wilson is the name that everyone remembers about this game, right? Yes. Yeah. Hot take. Mookie was going to beat that ground ball out anyway, so it didn't even matter that Buckner let it go through his legs. It's the Buckner game. We're, we're re-watching it. I've never watched it in full. I've seen the highlights. I, we we got we to take a deep dive on this one to really understand its place in history and why Bill Buckner unfairly maligned, really. Yeah, there, there's a... Um... There's been a lot of content made about this game, so we're going to have to find a different way to talk about it. But um, if you have suggestions for that, feel free to email us tippingpitchespod at gmail.com. Tweet at us tipping underscore pitches. Um, but yeah, we're going to have to we're going to have to make up some kind of weird idea. But this one, uh, this one's for me, huh? You let me yeah. go wild on this one. Yeah, we are. <laughs> I love it. Wear, okay. wear your Mookie Wilson jersey while we're recording. I honestly will. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Alex is going to take us down a... Have you named this segment yet? It's basically Alex gets bored and does a deep dive on the internet. But do yeah. you have something uh, more concise for me to say to the listeners? Uh, Alex gets bored. And All right. That's <laughs> <laughs> we, got a, we got some weird deep dives into, into baseball history. Not about games themselves, but, uh, but about the colorful characters that make up this game. Was that short and succinct enough for you? That was longer typical uh we'll be right back he likes a good time he comes alive at midnight okay alex take it away the stage is yours what weird thing did you find on the internet this has been side note for the listener you guys are maybe you are close friends with alex maybe you're not maybe you're alex's mom probably alex does this thing where he'll just uh He'll go like seven text messages without answering you, and then he'll res- respond with like a screenshot from a bizarre Wikipedia page about like some minor <laughs> league baseball team in 1984. 
it's just a great it's a great aspect of being friends with Alex. And um, we're just going to turn it into a segment while we wait for baseball to come back. So take it away. Players get cut from teams all the time. It's harsh, but it is. It's a part of sports. It's part of life. And uh, and rarely do we see players really lash out as a result, with the exception of maybe uh, maybe a little tweet here or there. That's a, that's sports in the 21st century. Just just tweeting away the pain. Hashtag loyalty. <laughs> but in 1935, Len Kennecke responded by becoming the first person to hijack an Sounds airplane like in the United States. Whoa. Not where I thought you were going with that. <laughs> it is a made-up name, and I'm not even 100% certain that I'm pronouncing it right, but such is life. That's, that's how you know I'm reading, you know? I'm not, I'm not watching some dumb TV. I'm reading books, man. Tell me the story. What did he do? Why did he steal a plane? Whose plane did he steal? Did they even have planes in the 1930s? I don't recall. No, they didn't. This was all just a fever dream. He stole the Wright Brothers plane. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. Len Kennecke, born... January 18th, 1904, in Barbaroo, Wisconsin, could have had things and very differently. After graduating, Aquarius. <laughs> after graduating high school, he had a good job working as a railroad fireman where he built up his physique. But baseball was calling to him. He played in semi-pro leagues in the area where scouts noted his good power and speed, and he eventually signed a minor league contract at 23 years old. He spent, he spent five years kicking around the minors where he became a pretty feared power hitter. And before the 1932 season, the New York Giants bought his contract for a whopping $75,000. In 1932, 75 grand. That's a lot. That is a lot. Yeah. Manager uh, John McGraw saw a bright future for the young prospect. But he scuffled at the major league level, and he's eventually demoted to the Giants minor league affiliate, the Buffalo Bisons, later in the season. That seems redundant as a name. Just saying. Buffalo Bisons? Buffalo and Bison. Aren't they the same thing? I don't know. I'm not a scientist <laughs> or a doctor. That's what we're learning a lot on this podcast. A lot of speculation about. <laughs> For another two years, he was a star at the minor league level where Bison's fans loved him. Buffalo Bison's fans loved him. Brooklyn Dodgers manager Casey Stengel saw what scouts had seen in the past and he decided to give him. him. Yeah, once or twice. Know his name. It's a name uh, I he, know. He decided to give uh, Kennecke... Right? Kennecke? Yes. Kennecke? Lenecke? Benecke? Schmenecke? You're doing great, kid. Thanks. He decided to give Kennecke another chance, acquiring him before the 1934 campaign. Stengel's bet paid off as the outfielder hit 320 with 14 home runs and played stellar defense. He actually set a National League record for fielding percentage, which, you 14 know, that, home that runs was all they had in 1934. Then. That's yeah. like 46 home runs now. Yeah, exactly. And he's getting paid like $4 billion to do it. It seemed like the start of a burgeoning career for him. Don't check that, Matt. (laughs) And yet when Kennecke returned in 1935, he really wasn't living up to his performance the year prior. His drinking had become a real problem, and Stengel mostly blamed his on-field performance on it. And by September, he had Kennecke riding the bench. Tough tough beat for our guy. Tough beat for Len, Ken, Kennecke, Should have stayed a firefighter. (laughs) <laughs> uh, on September 15th, 1935, Stengel had Kennecke come in to pinch hit in the ninth inning in the game in Chicago. Kennecke promptly grounded out, and Stengel released him the next day. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you hate to see it. But the season was almost over, and Stengel's like, you know what, we just, we, we can't afford this. I'm sorry. Flying back to New York City, Kennecke drank a quart of whiskey 
and became drunk and belligerent on the flight, even striking a stewardess. Whoa. The pilot had to leave the cockpit and shackle the drunken player to his seat. And when the plane landed in the in Detroit for a layover... Sounds like and, every 86 Mets flight. <laughs> yes, literally. <laughs> this was just a thing that happened. The pilot would pop out and be like, hang on, I've got these handcuffs. I'm going to hang up to the handcuff you to the seat, and while you're passed out, we're just going to kind of dump you in Detroit. After drinking a quart of any liquor or alcohol or whatever, I don't think you would need to handcuff me anywhere. I'd be safely on the ground. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's that's what he was. They landed in Detroit. He was unconscious, and they booted him off the plane to just sleep it off in the airport because it's, it's the 30s, and there are no rules. You can just, like, if you get drunk and hit the flight attendant, just uh, just sleep it off in the chair, kid. You'll, you'll be better in the morning. When he woke up in the airport, Kenneke chartered a private flight back to Toronto, where he hoped he could finish the season with your Dude, Buffalo 1935. License. Sorry to interrupt you, but 1935, not only could you fly commercial, you could charter a flight. I have no concept of the history of air travel in this country. I thought you couldn't get on planes to like the 50, 50s. <laughs> yeah. When did the Wright brothers come around again? I have no idea. Like 88? <laughs> Um, but once he was on board the plane, he whipped out yet another bottle of whiskey and drunk once more. He tried to take control of the plane from the pilot, apparently with the intention of just flying straight to Buffalo because he couldn't make the drive from Toronto to Buffalo. The pilot and the co-pilot attempted to <laughs> push. Haggling with your Uber driver. <laughs> the pilot. Wait, actually, this is the wrong address. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, can you just drop me off just around the corner, right actually? <laughs> That's literally what he was doing. And the pilot and co-pilot attempted to push Kennedy out of the cockpit, but the brawny outfielder was too strong for them, and the plane began lurching through the sky. Knowing that the plane was in danger of crashing, the pilot grabbed a nearby fire extinguisher and walloped Kennedy on the head multiple times. Kennedy passed out. And the That's pilot- really metaphorical <laughs> with the whole firefighter situation. Eesh, yeah. He passed out. The pilot landed on a nearby racing track. Went back to check on young Len, who was dead. Died from a bit brain hemorrhage. Oh, boy. That not is where how, I saw this one going. Not where you saw this one going. And at the end of it, Casey Stengel was so ridden with guilt over, uh, over the death of Len Kennecke that they actually hired a, uh, hired a writer to like, make a public statement for him. And, uh, and the players never forgave, forgave Stengel, and he was fired the next year. Wow. So there you go. That is the story of the first, that was the first time someone had ever hijacked a plane in the United States. And it was a Brooklyn Dodger. I feel as though you just read an entire Shakespearean tragedy in the last five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Len Kennecke, pour one out for our guy, although not not too much because everyone knows what happens when you you pour out a little too much. You hijack a plane. Moral of the story, don't get drunk and hijack a plane. (laughs) Thanks for uh, th- thanks for uh, listening to me tell the story of uh, of young Len Kenneke Lenneke Renneke. Who, who knows? Uh, I appreciate your commitment to the bit, and I appreciate your deep dive. I look forward to what you come up with next, and I hope that I never know the ending of any story that you begin to tell in this podcast because I was floored. I will. Uh, I will. I'll strive to keep it that way. I'm Okay, thank you everyone so much for listening. We know that these are um, weird and uncertain times in the baseball world and especially everywhere else. 
um, and we appreciate everyone listening. And if you enjoyed this, uh, we would love it if you let someone else know that they can listen throughout this uh, baseball hiatus. Uh, like like we said, uh, we are going to be doing 1986 Game 6 of the World Series, the Bill Buckner error. It's going to feel really good to watch the Mets actually win a game for once. Um, Alex, anything left to leave the listeners with? I don't think so, but um, but if there's anything that we missed about the 95 Mariners-Yankees game, please let us know in our DMs on Twitter at tipping underscore pitches. Shoot us an email at tippingpitchespod at gmail.com and let us know if there's a game that uh, that you want us to watch too because, uh, I mean, lots of baseball games, but we don't know how most of them go. So, uh, <laughs> so we appeal to you, the listener. I'm going to make it my pet project while we're... Uh while we're just sitting around to try to get rid of the underscore in our in our Twitter handle. How about that? Just tipping pitches on Twitter. I that'll, love that'll it. That'll feel nice to say. <laughs> um, thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back next month. Bye.